Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Today we continue in the sermon series on the canticles, looking at the canticle Magna et Mirabilia, which literally translated means great and miraculous or wondrous, and that's it. It's also called the Song of the Redeemed, so if you have your prayer book with you, which I think you probably do at this point, open up with me to um, the supplemental, supplemental canticles for worship found on page 79, um, and look with me at the text. Today's canticle is one of the shorter ones. It's only ten lines, which you probably noticed. We had longer other readings because uh, context is needed for this canticle as to what's going on. It's called the Song of the Redeemed. That's the other uh, title for it, in addition to the Latin one. Um, And at first glance, it seems not to be saying very much or anything truly unique. If you look at it quickly, it seems like we're praising God, we're praising his deeds, and um, how is this any different than the Te Deum, for example, or how is this any different than the the, uh, Song of the Lamb, which we went over. But there's actually quite a bit in here that comes out from how it is sung by God's people, and the hint to us is that it's the Song of the Redeemed, right? So... Who are the redeemed? You, me, those who put their faith in Christ, those who have been bought back have been redeemed, right? Jesus' death on the cross was the redeeming transaction that brought us back to God that bought us back to God. That's why we use that kind of language. It's actually um, a financial term to redeem something. Think about it. You can redeem a coupon, right? Or a coupon, as my wife says. You can redeem that. You take it to the store, right? And you hand it to the clerk. And what does he or she do? Hands you nothing in return, but takes a little bit of price off of your a little bit of a discount off of your groceries or whatever you're presenting the coupon for. So keep that in mind because there's a backstory here. And the backstory actually comes from the book of Revelation. It's all in the backstory on this canticle. So as we look at the text of the canticle today, I want you to ask yourself three different questions. We'll keep this in the back of your mind. Number one, what does the text say in itself? What does the text say in itself? So most specifically and independently, what does the text say? Don't read anything into it yet. Number two, what does the text say in the context with the backstory of Revelation that St. John gives to us in the apocalyptic vision that he has? So number one, what does the text say? Number two, what does the text say in the context of St. John's revelation? Or the revelation given to St. John, technically. Number three, what does the text say to the church then and now? 
because the book of Revelation is over in some ways and not over in other ways. So the church here and now actually is part of what's going on in Revelation. So let's first look. What does the text say itself? Look with me at Revelation chapter 15, verse 3, or in the prayer book, page 79. Revelation's an easy one to find at the back of the Bible, right? I'll go from the prayer book text just so that we have something consistent because we have different translations going on here. Great and marvelous. Great and marvelous. So we start at the beginning. A ruler of the universe, great deeds surpassing... uh, Oh, sorry. A ruler of the universe, Lord God, great deeds are they that you have done, surpassing all human understanding. Well, okay, let's look at that independently. What are, what's the canticle saying, right? Number one, God's the ruler of the universe, right? Pretty, pretty obvious, right? The ruler of the universe, the, in charge of all things, right? And great deeds, the word here is actually a Greek word that can be translated deeds or acts or works. So great are God's deeds, acts, and works, Let's continue on. Surpassing human understanding. Your ways are ways of righteousness and truth. O king of all the ages. Okay, so his ways now we're talking about. So we've talked about his acts, his deeds. Now his ways are surpassing, or his deeds are surpassing understanding. His ways are ways of righteousness and truth. So... What's that mean? What's it mean to have ways of righteousness and truth? Dikaie is the Greek word here. From the Greek uh, word for justice or righteousness. And what it means is that God's ways are always just. They're always in alignment with the rule of justice. Right? What is justice? What is justice? Even-handedness. Getting what is deserved, right? In consistency with a just law. How do we measure a law? Just because it's a law doesn't mean it's just, right? We say, no, there's this independent idea of justice, and that law may or may not be just. And we measure one law against the other. So what is this saying? This is saying that God is the author of the divine law. His ways are always just, always righteous. And secondly, they're always true. They're always true. They're related in truth and justice. So what does that mean? Well, if you look behind the text here into the Greek, this word that is translated truth is a word that means true, real, not counterfeit. Okay? True, real, not counterfeit. So they're just and they're real. Surpassing understanding. What's that mean? It means that 
for us human beings, the idea of justice and the idea of truth, while we can kind of know them, we can never fully understand them. Why? Because they're in the mind of God. Right? So we can participate in them. We can bring, we can, we can look at our lives and our, our, our political laws and um, uh, the rules of our lives, and we can say, what I have done is just, or what I have said is true, but we never are actually just or true, technically speaking, right? Only God is just and true because it's surpassing of our understanding. We participate in it. We try to conform ourselves to it, to justice and truth. So let's continue on. O king of all ages, who can fail? Who can fail to do you homage, right? And sing praises of your name, for you only are the Holy One. Okay, so this idea of giving homage. Some, in uh, the translation, I think the ESV translates it fear. Um, I'm not sure what other translations put it, how they, other, how they put it. Um, I'm preaching from the New American Standard Bible today because my ESV is out of commission. But this also translates it fear. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. Right? It's this idea of coming before God in his holiness, in his awesomeness, and bowing down. The image in the ancient world to do homage was to get down on your knees and kiss the feet of the person you were giving homage to. It's actually, that's the word that gets translated worship in our modern English translations. When you have, whenever you say worship, if you went back in time to speaking Hebrew, you would be saying, I come Sunday morning and I get on my knees and I kiss the feet of God. Which is actually a beautiful thing. Right? That's what it means to worship, to give God his due. To give him homage. Right? I've said a couple weeks ago, if there were nobody else here, it would be my duty to come here and worship. It would be your duty as a Christian to come here and worship. Because other people don't make your worship. You make your worship of God. And of course, it's a wonderful thing when we gather together with others who are worshiping God. Right? But it's ultimately about worshiping God first. Why? Because he's holy. And I found this fascinating. I, I don't know if I'm just because I'm a, a priest and kind of a geek when it comes to this stuff. But the word that's used here for holy is not the word that's typically used for holy. The word that's typically used for holy is, is hagias, right? And this is actually a different word. It's Hosios, which is different. Hagias means set apart, separate. Hosios means undefiled, free from wickedness. It's literally the measurement of holiness. So what this is saying literally is that God isn't just beyond us. He's not just on his own plane. But this is saying that he's completely undefiled. He's completely pure. And he is completely the judge of what is right and wrong morally. Okay, makes sense to give that kind of guy homage, right? 
Let's continue. All nations will draw near and fall down and kiss the hand. Here's that word again. It's, it's implied, actually. It's not in the, in the text. All nations will fall down. Why are they falling down? Because of God's awesomeness. Because they're worshiping him. They're kissing his hands and his feet. We can talk about the difference between that and another sermon. Nations will draw near because, why? His just and holy works have been revealed. Okay, so there's like the, what the text is saying purely in itself, right? That's what the text is saying purely in itself here. But what is the text saying in its context now? So because this is a short canticle, I'm going to do this. We're going to go back and start at the beginning. Ah, we're not done. Are you getting hopeful? No. Um, we're going to go back and start at the beginning, and we're going to work through this again in the context of where it falls in the book of Revelation. So let's look at that. You have your Bibles open to Revelation 15, right? Do you see where this canticle comes from? Revelation 15, verse 3, right? Who's saying this? And I saw like the sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, which is another canticle that we'll go through, the song of the Lamb, and this. Great and marvelous are your works, O God. So what are they referring to here when they say great and marvelous are your works or your acts? Well, again, context is king. Look back. Flip the page back chapter 14, to the beginning of our first, our, our, uh, first reading, and look with me at verse 6, the vision of the angel with God. Chapter 14, verse 6, and I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Eternal gospel. And what is the eternal gospel? Verse 7, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and springs of waters. Fear God and him and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Now this is a really bizarre thing, isn't it? What do we think of judgment? When we hear the word judgment, does it have a positive connotation to us? No. It should. It should. But see, our experiences of judgment are always defective. Right? Think about it. Your and my experience of judgment is usually not good. We did something wrong, we did something unjust or untrue, and this means that we deserve punishment, and that's the judgment. Or, the person who's doing the judgment is not just and true, and therefore, even if we didn't do something wrong, we're going to get punishment, because the judge is corrupt, right? You ever been in a, in a court case where the judge is corrupt? More, than, more often than not, that happens, right? And so that's not a good judgment either, right? Or there's a third option, right? The third option is that the judge might be just and true, 
and we might be somewhat just and true, and yet the judge has incomplete facts, right? So, you know, let's say that a police officer pulls me over this afternoon and I'm driving my dad's car, and the police officer says, you stole this car, and I don't have any proof that I'm borrowing the car, and for some reason it goes to court and the judge doesn't have any proof of that, the, the judgment might still be unjust, even though from the appearance of data, it seems like he's doing the just thing, right? So do you see the three ways that, that, that judgment generally goes wrong for us, <laughs> this side of heaven, right? We're bad, the judge is bad, or there's incomplete data. There's probably more, but those are the three that I can think of. In this case, the judgment is part of the gospel, which is really bizarre. Let's keep going on. Verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. So, what's being said here? Now remember, revelation is imagery and symbolism. So there's always something going on under the words. Who is Babylon in the Jewish mindset and the early Christian mindset? If you, again, put your marker or your finger there at the canticle on page 79 and flip with me now in your prayer book, or you can do it in your Bible too, to Psalm 137. If you're doing it in your prayer book, it's page 453. Psalm 137 on page 453. I'll read it to you. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon we sat down and wept, and we remembered you, O Zion. As for our harps, we hung them up upon the trees that are therein, for those who led us away captive required of us a song and melody in our heaviness. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing of the Lord's song in the land of our captivity? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my dearest joy... Remember the children of Edom, O Lord, in the day of Jerusalem, how they said, down with it, down with it, even to the ground. O daughter of Babylon, wasted with misery, happy shall be the one who regards you as you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your children and throws them against the stones. It's a brutal psalm. Not one we usually read on Sunday, by the way. But what's being said here? Who is Babylon? Well, in the Old Testament, Babylon is an actual empire that enslaves and exiles God's people, forcibly taking them away, killing them, enslaving them. What's Babylon for us today? What's the larger Babylon? Who's always the power behind the evil that men do? It's Satan. It's our enemy, our adversary. 
So why is this good news? Why is this judgment good news? Because this is God saying judgment will come. There will be a reckoning between good and evil. And you, church, particularly the church in the first century that St. John is writing to, what you have experienced that time when Nero lit you on fire as human torches in his garden to light his garden party, those things will be avenged. Persecution all over the world, the persecution that the church has received will be avenged. There will be justice. God hasn't forgotten it. And that judgment is actually good news. Because what's wrong will be made right. And every act of evil, every act of Satan, of the devil, will be judged and will be made right. That's the good news of judgment. Babylon, in the book of Revelation, stands for all cultures in all times who stand against God. It stands for the kingdom of darkness, for mankind's unmitigated passions, our lusts more than sexual, our lusts for power, our lusts for, to control other people. All that will be condemned and judged. Sexual immorality, the things that enslave men and women, will be judged and destroyed. Continue with me in verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, said with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast at his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark in his name. What's being said here? Again, the image of the beast is who? Satan, right? And those who follow him. Those who worship him. And here we have a vision of hell where the burning never stops. The smoke never ceases to go up. And that is just. And that is judgment. And it's good news. Why? Because evil deserves that. Evil deserves that. Jesus himself references this when he speaks of hell. And he says, it's the worm that eat and do not die. It's a place where the fire is never quenched. In Mark chapter 9, verse 48. But again, while this is not good news to Satan, his worshipers and those who oppress the church, it is good news for Christians who have been persecuted and who face the kingdom of darkness. St. John tells us this much. If you doubt me, look at the next verse. John gives a little editorial, right? He says in verse 12, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God. 
and their faith in Jesus. Here is the perseverance of the saints. And I heard a voice, verse 13, from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. So here we have John telling us that this is good news for the believer. Why? Because this is a reason for us to persevere, to know that there will be an end, to know that that end is fixed and the judgment will come. You know, I always find it strange that when Christians of certain theological strains have movies about the apocalypse or when Hollywood makes a movie about Revelation, it's always something that would come out at Halloween (laughs) and not something that would come out at Christmas or at Ascension, right, or at Easter. It's always dark. But notice, it's only dark for the enemies of God. It's not dark for the rest of us, right? Look at the next image. Then I looked, this is verse 14, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. I brought in something today. Maybe you noticed it when you came in. It's not a sickle. It's a scythe. Now, I've never seen a picture of Jesus with this. Usually you see the Grim Reaper with it around Halloween, right? But this passage talks about Jesus the Reaper. Jesus the Reaper. And it gives us the image of Jesus with the angels coming down and sweeping over the earth with, the, with a, a sickle, which is probably smaller than this, but this is more dramatic. This is a scythe, I think, right? I borrowed it from my father-in-law. It's a harvester. It's how they used to harvest things. So Jesus here is saying, I will come and harvest And when I come and harvest, I harvest the good with the bad, the sinful with the the redeemed, the good with the evil. Look at the text. The man who sits with a crown on his head, who can that be but Jesus Christ? And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, this is verse 16, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, And he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, who, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vines of the earth because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine and the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out. So here we have another image of the judgment. That both are brought together, but then there will be a winnowing, a separation of the good and the evil. And once again, the evil will be crushed like grapes are crushed in a winepress. All right, we've tackled a lot But what is this saying to us? What is this saying to us 
as the context of this canticle. Notice, the canticle is in response to this story. So the joyful around the throne of God are singing this story. What are the deeds that they're singing of? God's reaping. The harvest. The canticle tells us, as we look at it again, that the deeds of God are great and miraculous. Rather than an imperfect or wicked judge or ruler, Jesus is the perfect judge and ruler. A ruler of the universe, great deeds and surpassing human understanding, righteousness and truth, Jesus does not judge by merely what he sees, but he knows the backstory. He knows all the facts. He knows everything that's going on. He sees into the hearts of men and women, knows our motivations. His salvation of us, his judgment of us, surpasses even our knowledge of ourselves. O king of all ages, who can fail to do him homage? Jesus is a king that does not merely uphold justice impartially, but whose ways themselves are justice and who destroys the enemies of justice. He doesn't just make the judgment, he then executes against the unjust. Babylon, those forces that have enslaved his people, whatever they are, obliterated. Can you imagine what that would look like in your life? Think of the worst sin that you deal with, that you struggle with. What if tomorrow you woke up and it was just gone? That's the kind of hope this judgment gives. Who can do a man, who can fail to do someone like that homage? All will bow down to him and homage those who have been judged and those who have been judged and saved and redeemed. Maybe those that have been saved and redeemed will bow down and worship him more than anybody else because they know the depth of their sin. They know what this judge has covered. All nations will draw near him and fall down, it's written. Nations draw near because of his just and holy works are revealed and his sifting of the faithful from the faithless of all nations. This is why this is called the Song of Redeemed. Because just like the Song of Moses, just like in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, just like those who embrace God in the Old Testament, so those who are redeemed and embrace Jesus and worship God will witness these great and miraculous deeds and give thanks. Number one, for the gospel. Number two, because the darkness, the kingdom of darkness has been obliterated and destroyed. Number three, because God's enemy Satan and his followers who persecute the church will get their just desserts. Number four, most importantly, because being gathered by him, to him, as his redeemed people, God not only judges the most severely, but also gives the most grace. Because what is this? It's a song to the Lamb. That it not only judges, Jesus the one who judges, but Jesus the one who pays the price for those who avail themselves of it. And so we are to have enthusiasm about this. We are to be joyful about this. We are to sing a canticle about this. Because God has saved us, and we know the depths from which he has saved us.
And there will come an end when all that's wrong will be put right. So we persist. So we endure. So we hope. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.